Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, your host of Media Mavens Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Joey. What's up? Oh, hey, listen, a rarity for Arizona today, rain. People were actually dancing out in the streets. Really? Yes. Were they praying for money for COVID free or just? No, they were just out there seeing what that wet stuff was falling from the, uh, yeah, exactly. They weren't sure what was going on. That's so funny. Oh my God. Okay. So I'm super excited. Like we have such great guests on our podcast. We've just gone around the world with everything, but I'm super excited because I have Dan Fugardi with me, a very dear friend of mine. Dan is a founding partner of Mana Pacific, working with solar stuff. Dan is right here. You'll correct me. He's managing party advantage on brand espionage, all this stuff. And there's so much we need to talk about. And I know I'm just going to screw this up and you have questions and Dan's right here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited because I'm not excited because it's really bad that I'm excited about this. But we all know that a submarine sank off the coast of Thailand. Uh, Indonesia. Indonesia a few days ago. And it's all about politics. And we've covered space and all this stuff and homeland security. But like, I'm super excited to have Dan here on the podcast because Dan's background started out after school. I think, a nuclear submarine, which is, to me, just blows my mind because I've been impressed with all of our space commerce guys, yeah. the nuclear submarine stuff. And so I know Dan was in a big story that just came out or was coming out on his theory of who this who blew the submarine up. I don't but know why they asked me. I don't, they did ask you because you are so <laughs> smart. But like, this is what's crazy because you started a nuclear submarine. I want to talk to you about that because this is in the news. And then how we went from this, oh my God, super smart guy with that into branding and business and solar panels to know social impacts a big thing but i want to circle back to the submarine days and is that how you decided that social impact was it like since you were in nuclear submarine management or give us this whole submarine thing for us before we kick in because i'm so excited to talk about this sure sure yeah definitely you know actually funny enough I'll, i'll i'll say something kind of cut back to it later but the, the guy that I started Monet Pacific with is a dear friend of mine. He's a brother of mine, my best friend from the Navy, uh, you know, 20 years ago, we were in the subforce together. And actually that's who called me with Monet Pacific. So we'll, we'll come back. Pacific fleet subforce. Okay, so, so, so we're 770 fast. Okay. So I just go to this promote this because you know me, I'm all about giving people credit. You were in the top of your class in nuclear submarine school. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was not. I will, I'll give a very honest answer. I got to keep this authentic. 600 <laughs> people started in our class, 333 got through. So there's about almost a 50% attrition rate. I will not sit here and tell you I was towards the top of that list, but I'm more proud of the fact that I, I cut a deal with the Navy that, that I've had some people tell me that were there for 20 years I've never seen, where you get a dream sheet and based on your grades, they put you where you want to go. So I was originally Originally on, on aircraft carriers, and there's only five bases, and everybody chooses San Diego first, and then Norfolk, and then Washington. So I, I did my dream sheet. I'm like, they're going to stick me in a hole in Saskatchewan. So I, I put like on big letters across the, the page, which they hated, you know, make you a deal, dot, dot. If you let me go to Hawaii, I'll switch to submarines because I knew they needed people on submarines. And I was the only person in my class of the remaining 333 that got Pearl Harbor. Everybody on submarines 
choose Pearl, chose Pearl Harbor. They gave that card away in boot okay, camp. So, so I, you I used were the leverage. top. You were top of some class. I was the, I was the top negotiator in my nuclear <laughs> powers class. Oh, oh, speaking of Arizona, with this, I know that Pearl Harbor is the base for the USS Tucson. I was about to tell you, I was on the Tucson. And I do have a hat from the uh, Tucson as well. Nice, nice. I had mine. I, I lost it. I haven't found it. I, I, I actually had a friend who served on board and he got nice. me uh, a hat and he says, listen, this is the closest thing I can get you. So, uh-huh. yeah, that's a, You know, it's that's cool. I've, I've missed my Tucson hat. But yeah, I was, I was on the Tucson. Oh. Funny, huh? Yeah. So, yeah. But, but what did you do in nuclear submarine stuff? So a uh, nuclear submarine, obviously, has a nuclear power plant on board. So um, I guess I'll, I'll actually take this as an opportunity to, to make a comparison with, with the sub that went down in Indonesia. So that went down there, and this is the most of the sub force around the world are, are diesel electrics. So obviously you need a power source and obviously subs need a power source that don't need oxygen under the water. Diesels need oxygen. They charge a battery, then they switch to battery, they go underwater and they're virtually silent. Nuclear submarines are actually not as silent as diesel electrics when the diesel is on the battery, but a nuclear submarine could stay underwater for long periods of time. Very, very long, like months and months and months. Actually, one of my friends was underwater for 15 months. So yeah, so a nuclear power plant, the way it works, just kind of, you know, from, I, I assume this is common knowledge, but I guess it's not. You have a, you have a core, you have a reactor, right? And, and in that reactor is what's called a primary system, which is just highly pressurized water that, that doesn't have a boiling point of 212 degrees. And also I'm thinking, I'm like, please tell me it's 212. That'd be bad one to miss. And then, you know, with that highly pressurized water, you can charge that to any heat that you want. That then goes into a secondary system, which is a vat of water at atmospheric pressure. So there's a heat exchanger in which this extremely hot charged water goes through the heat exchanger, brings that vat of water up to a boiling point, and then obviously turns into steam and then that becomes a steam plant. The steam then goes to turbine generators. The turbine generators are, are attached to gears that go to the screw that turn the propeller. And then they also go to motor generators. And the motor generators are obviously on the other side of the turbine of the motor generators is a, is an electromagnetic motor that generates electricity. And that electricity is then, you know, distributed throughout the boat. I was in control of that distribution system of electricity that would get, you know, passed down to different, you know, through buses and breakers and, and what have you. Like, and, I'm uh, going to admit this is a little over my. Like, oh, not in degree, but it's so fascinating just to listen to him talk about this. I'm getting yeah. this because, I mean, if you watch <laughs> Hunt for Red October, you kind of get what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, you know, a lot of that stuff, actually, I haven't, I haven't watched all those movies, but the ones I've watched, uh, they, they, they really did a good job of keeping, I can't remember the ones I watched, but it was pretty authentic. Was, but, was uh, that one with Harrison Ford where he was the uh, Russian sub commander? I can't remember the name of the movie offhand, but it was done yeah. by National Geographic. That was the yeah, that's the one I was referencing. That one it was it was it was wild. It definitely uh, it brought back some memories for sure. Oh. But yeah, yeah, that was it. And then I also was there was a few jobs. So when you're in the military, you typically have to wear a few different hats. And my one of my other jobs was uh, actually I'll tell you my other two jobs. The other one was to control the steam valve for the propeller. So when we had to go, and this is, I don't know if this is getting too far into it, but in a, in a plant, what's interesting is if, if you have a torpedo chasing you and you got to go full speed ahead, when you crank open the steam valve, you can actually open it too fast. And the reason why is because there's a demand, there's a, there's a demand uh, power equation where if you suck too much steam through the system and you go back to that vat and the temperature co- drops, and then that affects the temperature in the primary system, it will actually increase reactivity. If you increase reactivity too fast, it will shut itself off. It'll hit an interlock to, to prevent a, a meltdown and you'll actually stop. Yeah 
off the boat. And you don't want to do that when you're getting chased from a torpedo. So it was actually a very careful thing to open the, the steam valve at, at exactly the max speed without overdoing it. So when you're pushing that, you're pushing, what's, what's the max a uh, nuclear engine can uh, be pushed to? I mean, I've heard 120%. I've heard 130% for <laughs> some. So, but I know on Hunt for Red October, it was 110% and they shut it down. So it's kind of a funny, well, there's two answers to that. One, that's more of a layman's way to explain it because we don't go by that. And, and two, the max capacity of, of any power output I can't talk about. So okay. yeah, so so that's a, it's also the easy out for me because I'll be honest with you, that one's tough. I can remember the speeds, the depths. Uh, it's been 20 years. I, could, I don't even know if I can answer that question for you anyway. So convenient answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's way, way above my pay grade. So let's just put it that so, way. So, so this is because of your background and your connections. This is why they asked you to step in on the submarine this week. That got hit, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They, there was somebody from um, Indonesian press got a hold of me and, and asked me what my opinion was on why it went down. Cause right now it's just a bunch of conjecture. You know, they, there's, there's a number of things that could happen and even less like a, an airplane that goes down where you have a black box where you have, you can see where everything is. There's just a ton of conjecture right now. Everybody's guessing what happened. And, you know, I was just asked to guess and I have my guesses. But do, you think, do you think somebody kind of slipped and kind of hit a torpedo because there was something secretive about it? Or do you no, think it really was an accident? No, it was just a torpedo drill. And that's not the way that something like that would go down, go down, meaning, meaning carried out. I think it was a 40 year old boat. And my, and again, this is just my conjecture, but my, my hypothesis of what it could have been. It could have been a number of things, but when you're underwater, hydraulic systems are extremely high pressure environments and, and, and they're also not condensable, right? So if you have a finite amount of water, you can't suppress that water any further. So it's essentially like hitting a wall that you can't go any further on. And, and you know, ocean pressure, water deep beneath the ocean is the same thing. It's, I mean, you can't, these are forces you can't fight against. So there actually comes a point when the brittle fracture fertility point of steel, which is where steel can become weak enough to break could actually be out, you know, overwhelmed by, by the pressures around it from hydraulics in the ocean. I, it's a very good chance something like that happened where that happened. I have no, I mean, I do have an idea. I don't, I, I don't. Ballast you know, tanks. Could have been the ballast tanks. That was one of the things I said, yep. It was uh, the, the vents, you know, now typically on most of these boats. Now, I don't know much about these Indonesian made diesel electrics, but you typically have interlocks, you got backups to backups. I would be doubtful that one ballast tank vent, but then again, look, one vent could, if it's big enough, it could be enough to, to keep the buoyancy from, from being effective. So yeah, it could have been that. It could have been that they were diving and they almost hit the bottom of the ocean. You know, it could have been something simple like that. They, they ruled out sailor error. And I really don't know how they ruled that out so fast. Cause I'll tell you, for, <laughs> I'll tell you for a matter of fact, that uh, sailor error should not be ruled out right away. That's that's for for sure. We we actually shot a, another boat in our own harbor with a torpedo once on accident. What? Yeah. So oh, I've got to hear this. Two sons is now responsible for the Please, dude. I'm going to be getting a phone call from somebody after this. It's like, hey, hey, man, you're not supposed to be. This falls no, under your secret. I don't want to. I don't want to know the particulars on that one. But I mean, I, I guess do. accidents do happen all the time. No, all the time. I and mean, we, uh, yeah, yep. I mean, look, it's like airplanes when they go down. Most of the time, it's yeah. pilot error. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, these systems don't fail. They're pretty sturdy. But again, in this case with the Indonesian boat, it's 40 years old. And when you're talking the pressures those things take on, you can't, you know, it's like an airplane that's not maintenance if, you know, things can, can break. Yeah. 
So I guess we're not talking about how you guys accidentally blew up something. We didn't, no. I didn't say blow up. I said we hit another boat. Look, I'll, I'll tell you the story. It's nothing. It's nothing. I mean, I, whatever. If it is it's not classified. Let's. Yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's not classified as far as I know. And, you know, whatever. It's a funny story. So we, we had to test the torpedo tubes and we bowed the boat out, which means we, we faced it out. So it was against the dock. And then we faced the boat outwards about 45 degrees. And you got sailors standing on the deck and the captain's out there, real serious guy. And he's like, open torpedo doors, one, three, you know, for there's because it's one, three, and then two and four on either side of the boat, port and starboard, right? So we open it and then fire torpedo in five, four, three, and shoot it. And, it's like, and you see this torpedo go flying out into the, <laughs> oh, the middle of the harbor. Yeah. So, so it was cool. I was on the, I wasn't, I wasn't on watch. So I got to sit there and watch this all. My friends are standing at attention. One of my friends in particular, Lamar Harmon, who I haven't talked to in a long time, a little shout out to uh, Harmon. We cracked jokes so much that during serious situations, we, we sometimes got in trouble because we just could not hold it together. And, and this was, this was, this was one of them. He, he's standing there and uh, big dude always banged his head into things. And he's, I'm, I'm up on the dock and he's looking at me and he's, he's shaking his head. No, like Fugardi, don't make me laugh. Cause we just, <laughs> that was like, the, that was the norm, you know, the normal routine. And this was before the torpedo accident. So then we get to torpedo the third one and the guy, you know, the captain's like, you know, fire torpedo tube three and five, four fires off into the middle of the, the harbor. And I see everybody, my peripheral vision, every, everybody's heads watching this torpedo. And it's like heading out in the middle of the, the harbor straight. And it's like, and then all of a sudden, bang, it takes a right turn and, and a sharp right, like a 90 degree right and head straight towards a cruiser that's parked on the dock. And where everybody, you just, you see it and you see everybody like a cartoon, like everybody's head turning at the same speed and like, you know, and then it's heading towards the boat. Everybody kind of winces and you hear this bang and it hits the boat, goes under the dock and then played Plinko through the, the pilings under the dock. And you hear it going bang, bang, dang, bang, bang, you know, and it's banging off all on, on, on all the pillars under the dock. And anyway, the captain turns around and sheet white. He's like, close torpedo tubes, one, three, testing commenced. And he starts walking off the boat. And my buddy, Lamar, which I got to say for the, the context of the story, is a black guy, which was which, which is relevant because it's, I, I haven't seen a black guy's face turn this red before in my life. He was trying so hard not to let his laughter go. I thought his eyeballs were going to come right out of his head. As the captain walked by, his cheeks are inflated and he's biting down on his lip and he's trying with everything in his might not to let it go. And I'm just on the dot. We're just crying. And we were like, it, it, we laughed so hard about that forever. Oh, that yeah, is good. Nobody got hurt, though. Yeah, no. No, I would have been sitting there the minute it hit that ship. I would have gone touchdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, believe me. I was I was tempted to do something, but I think I was like, yeah, it's, this, this, this guy's had enough for today. I think I'll, I'll shut, shut on this one. I've already been in trouble in the past for silly things like silent ops. And I've got this mic on my, my head in the command center. And I jump up in the middle of silent ops one day. Lamar's driving the boat and I start doing a Britney Spears number and I'm like, oops, I did it again. Just to, just to break. It was sitting there for five hours of pure silence. Captain turns around. He's like, what the hell are you doing? And it's like, sit down, sit down now and stop singing. You know, and Lamar's like trying not to lose it at the, at the home. Yeah. This is what sailors do underwater, which is why there could have definitely been sailor sailor error. error. Anyway. Oh my God. This is like, like, this is a whole other podcast in yeah. itself, Joe. Oh um, God. <laughs> I think, so I, I mean, I have so many more questions, but I know you got serious business questions right now. <laughs> we all have serious business questions, yeah, don't this, we? This is, but so is this why you're the co-founder of Mana Pacific? I know it's based 
somewhere off the US, and it's about using solar power to better these islands. Is this was this like idea or that passion kind of tied to your submarine days? Was this something as you got older? Well, actually, if we're going to go back to the beginning of it, it's actually before submarine days. So when I was growing up, my dad was a merchant developer and, you know, old school civil engineer, built communities and buildings and stuff, did really well in the 80s and was, you know, certifiably wealthy in the 80s. I had a garage full of power wheels and stuff, lived in a really nice neighborhood, et cetera. And in 88, 89, when the market crashed, real estate market crashed, my dad and his three partners had a, a big community that was a couple hundred million dollars. And they were just putting alarm systems and furniture in these condos and they lost everything. And the contracts were not done right at the time. All right. Think Italians in uh, Jersey in the eighties. Right. So let's just say, uh, <laughs> the, back of the truck. You, you know, uh, you know, let's just say that the <laughs> underwriter at the bank was one of the, you know, was, well, the, one of the partners was, was, was tied into the ownership of the bank and paperwork wasn't done right. Long story short, my dad, my everything kind of fell on my dad and one of his partners and they lost everything. So mm-hmm. we went from being rich to poor and my parents divorced at that time for nothing having to do with that. It was already kind of heading that way. And my mom, my brother and I ended up in Florida and my mom was like the, you know, bartender at my dad's yacht club kind of thing. So she didn't have an education. She was working at a fruit stand for a hundred bucks a week and fruit. And we lived in the hood. So I actually lived in gang ridden territories, neighborhoods for about four or five years. And, you know, my best friends in high school, one of my best friends in, in freshman year of high school had been shot three times, twice in the chest and the stomach and two gang fights. And once in the, and once in the leg by his mom, to give you an idea of how hard the neighborhoods were, where I lived. So, you know, and I'd, I've seen a lot of stuff. I've seen stuff at the street level, gang, you know, shoot, shootouts, gang fights and stuff. And I had friends in Bloods and Crips and I tried to stay out of it. And, you know, I had friends that died and it was in. So I've seen, you know, I've seen how bad it gets in, call it underserved communities. And you know what I, what I learned is that these, these guys and girls from these areas, it's really sad. It's sad. It's a sad state of affairs because they're great. Even most of the people that are in gangs, you know, which why gang intervention is a, a thing that I, that I care, that I'm passionate about. They simply lack some voice of encouragement, some motivation. I mean, got nothing. Some of these people had nothing and they were smart and they were, they, they had, you know, they could have had great lives. And that's kind of, so for that reason, I'm passionate about that crossroads in a, in a, in a mid teens life that comes from a bad environment because that's at the point where they can go right or left. And, uh, that's probably why I wake up today, trying to do what I can to get people to the point of where they can actually execute their own opportunity. And then I'm out. I try to get to the point where people have opportunity and then I'm out. What they do beyond that is up to and them. And that's what Monopacific's about, right? Well, yeah, in a way, Monopacific's uh, different. It ties in the the, the electrical background uh, with the humanitarian efforts, and it's, which is why it took John Miller, the the, the founder, I mean, he's, it, it's, it was his brainchild. He, my best friend in the Navy, he called me 20 years later and he said, Figardi, we, we got to start Mono Pacific. And I'm like, we got a what? <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? And, and he was in solar development since he'd gotten out of the Navy for eight years and they were doing good stuff. But he said this, I've got it all together. And I'm like, what's it? And he's like, you know, the Pacific Islands, they're strapped, they're, they're, they're chained down by fossil fuels and it's and it's a travesty because you know the island people are amazing people and these communities are the most authentic sweet tribal communities that mind their own business but obviously they have to conform to the energy it comes from fossil fuels which is stupid they should have been the first people to get solar but they're not investable countries because they have bad gdps they're corrupt 
you know, and basically they're just not good investments from an investment standpoint. So the mainlands get those, you know, get the solar attention first. So what he had come up with is a way to use uh, very creative financing using legislation that goes into their governments and use a sovereignty backed agreement that then escrows money coming, but you know, you grab the money between the utility and the government and, and put it in an American escrow account, which lock boxes the money for the investors gives it the whole project a triple B plus credit rating. And now, bam, we are, have access to the billions of dollars of ESG funds around the world. So that's, that's the mission. And the mission is the, the subsequent result is that we're able to, to cover the Pacific Islands in solar panels, which is a geographic third of the world. And now they're no longer beholden to the Middle East and Russia. And China, who comes in, so the Middle East and Russia goes, here's this really expensive oil that you need, you know, and then they're like, all right, we got to buy it. And then they run out of money. And then China comes along and says, hey, we'll let you, we'll lend you the money. But if you default, we're going to take your sovereignty because China wants to move into the Pacific. So this frees them from all of that. So if one of these three countries don't come and kill us first, we're going to free the Pacific. Okay, Dan, is that uh, when you talk about the solar project, I don't know if it's a mix of both or is it we have solar farms that produce the energy or is this a typical top of the house no, these uh, are, service? Yeah, these are commercial solar farms. So the way our process works is we go out to these countries. And we're, we're already in, in negotiations with three countries right now. We go to the country first to the government and we say, hey, here's the ingredients to the cake. We're going to let you make the cake because we don't want to look by coming in and owning the solar developments. Then it's just the same problem in a different direction. Now they're now they're beholden to the U.S., right? We want to let them have their independence. So we say, here it is. We're going to give you the answers to the test. We're going to give you the funding. We're going to consult and you're going to own it and you're going to reap the benefits of the investment. If the government says no, for whatever reason, which which is why it's set up this way, it shouldn't ever then we'll go to the utility and we'll say, hey, we'll let you make the money because solar investments are very good investment deals. They 25 year panels break even at seven years tops so that you get, you know, you get 18 years of free energy, which is amazing. So, you know, it would be a good investment for us to hang on to. But again, that's not the point. So then we give it to the, you know, we say utility, do you want to do it? If the utility passes, then we'll come in with our own private investors. We'll get a piece of land. We'll put down a solar commercial farm and we'll own it. Interesting. Is it hard to find that land on many islands that really don't have a lot of land available? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of the pieces to the puzzle, including just getting into the islands. As you know, there, you know, a lot of them are very territorial, very tribal, you know, types of environments. And it's one of the things I've got to give Miller a hat tip on it. And not only Miller's one of the most prolific people I've ever met. He loves to give me a hard time every chance he gets. So Miller really is, he, he's really an amazing person in that. He's wickedly smart with the technicals of power generation and electricity. I mean, he knows every nuance to uh, to an, a system from an engineering standpoint. He also is extremely smart with legal stuff. He's also politically involved in, in these movements in government. He's also got a heart bigger than the state of Texas. And, you know, that prolific nature that he has has, I think, really allowed him to pioneer this because he was able to get into those tribes and, and get accepted to the point where, unfortunately, he just passed away recently. But the, the, the prime minister of Samoa was the godfather of his children. So, you know, he got that deep in with the communities there because they love him. You know, he's actually, he's, he's a Vietnamese background, his blood and stuff. So he's, so there's some connection there. And yeah, so, so no, th- to answer your question, sorry, long-winded oh, no, answer. It's, it's definitely another challenge to one, get into the communities, two, get the land. But you know what? The, the Pacific Islands, Islanders know that. Know but this. what about some of these, like, 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 
you know, other islands, like in Central South America, like Honduras, Costa Rica, you know, what about going to other parts? Or is this specifically targeted only Pacific Islands? Or is this, and can you expand this globally to other areas that are in need? Oh, 100%. I mean, look, we, we intend to, after this, I see no reason why the planet right now is in a transition in the whatever it is, I've read so many different things, but hundreds of thousands of years of humans being alive, whatever it is, is in a one-time transition that will take place, you know, again, one time in, in human history, which is where we go from drawing our power from the ground to up in the sky. And there's still a lot of earth to be covered. So yeah, probably, but you know, we're starting with the Pacific. We're starting small. We chose a geographic yeah. third of the world. So now, that, that's a very world. smart thing to do, considering the the pressures that these governments do have on them. I think, you know, one, it's low-hanging fruit, but two, it's a very hard to pick low-hanging fruit. Yeah, you know, that's a great way to put it. Yep. That's a great way to put it. It makes a ton of sense, but the barriers between here and logic is, you know, bigger than it is, is illogical. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's let's talk about like like this has been such a great podcast. I want to stay on solar, like do good, be good. I know you're launching something new right now. I want to talk about, but I know Joe. Let's let's Dan's launching something new that's about social impact. What was the thing we talked about? Profits for social impact. But then I know we want to talk about brand corruption, yeah, as well. And I don't know if those two are related with bondage or if there's i know everything you do is for social good regardless of where the impact financially is Mm -hmm. because i know you're working on my pacific and bondage is there a social impact to all of that tied into this new thing you're launching or absolutely so yeah everything every company that i work with and right now i'm I'm, i've got say five under my umbrella where you know at this point i'm I advise and consult on, on, on these companies, but this is kind of the element that I bring to it. Yeah, they've all, what we're launching. Okay, so this is the big reveal. So I've been working on this for a while. This is the first time that it'll be spoke about tonight, which uh, which I understand this, it, this doesn't air for a while. So I got my clock. Uh, maybe, <laughs> but this is timely. So this may be, no, we may no, be live. No, no. We may gonna... be live. We'll, we'll no, this is, this is secret stuff. I mean, if you don't feel comfortable doing it, you don't uh, have to do it. It is a podcast we could hold, but I want you to talk. But if it's up to you, well, no, I mean, you know, we, Joe and I, we, I decided when I started the podcast, we are no longer going to edit out. People have cursed. It's been hilarious. We've had an amazing podcast with Ron G that got very, not racially got, charged. Yes, it did. It got it very did racially, racially charged. charged. <laughs> but, 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 but the thing is, though, I, I love Ron, though. You I, can't, I, oh, you, you know Ron. I you, forgot oh, yeah. Ron. Ron's great, man. I can't, so you can't be mad at we've Ron. We've had Ron a few times. So the thing is, though, I, you know, obviously some things are time sensitive. Being in PR, we're always about honoring, respecting clients' deadlines. Yes. But I feel like some of these podcasts we've had are so timely. And I feel like with this torpedo launch and this solar, this is a timely time to not hold <clears> on this podcast. So right. I, you know, no I don't finisher. think we should talk about the new venture because yeah, I mean, if you again, don't want it, is, you don't want to, or could you give us I want to, I want to, no, it's okay. It's okay. Listen, it's, it's fine. I want to respect your, you know, the fact that you're, you're still in the developing portion of this and yeah. you don't want to give out any kind of trade secrets or anything along those lines. Can you just give it like a here, here, here's, high here's level? A, here's a, yeah, here's the beautiful part about it. Even if, if somebody took my trade secrets, call it, and, and did something with it, that's the goal. The purpose of this, it's a, it's a real definition movement in that, you know, it takes a village to get this done. And what, here, all right, here's my theory. I'm going to get deep on you guys. I believe that if you run the time down the road decades from now, and, and it could be a century, it could be two centuries. I believe that we'll start seeing this issue come decades that pretty soon 
the world will be run by the money. Decisions will be made by the money in a way that it's that, that we don't even understand today. And what I mean by that is there's no matter how you feel politically, and this is not a political statement, but we're going to become a socialistic world because the middle class is going to go away because it's just a natural result of technology increasing, jobs decreasing, and the population increasing. There's no way to sustain that unless we purposefully, you know, kept technology down and, you know, killed a bunch of people. It's just not going to happen. We're going to get to a point where technology does the job of a million people and we've got billions more people and we've got, you know, and, and it's just going to be the have and the have nots. It's going to be the people at the tops of those those uh, engines and then, and then the rest are going to have to be babysat by those people. Now, what happens at that point? Well, it depends. And the depends is whose hands are the money in? In my book, the people who have the money, they're going to be forced to come up with structures as to how to take care of the rest of the world. It's going to become a battle of either good and evil or at least good and the selfish. So I think there's a big crisis ahead that people don't understand. And this is really my life's work to try and avert this crisis the best possible. And I think the way to avert the crisis is to simply make sure the money ends up in the good hands because like anything, once power is gained by one side, you it's hard to get that power back, made probably impossible. So my theory as to how to go about that is is leveraging a accreditation that's out there now called the B Corp. And have you heard of the B Corp? No, I haven't. Please uh, explain. So this is interesting to me because a lot of a lot of people haven't heard this, and it's a big thing. It started by these guys in I believe 2006, where essentially it's an accreditation. Now it's a one one of the things that the government did right where they've ordained this accreditation. So you got a, a C-Corp and an S-Corp, which are filings. The B-Corp is right. not a filing. It simply lies on top of the C-Corp or the S-Corp. And what it, accreditation says is you are a company that's you know doing your part, right? And what does that mean? Well, you have a checklist of things that establish the fact that you're not a dirtbag, right? We don't have women that are being raped in our establishment. People haven't died on the job site. We're not stealing money. We're not selling porn or liquor. You know, you have to at the core be of those main criteria out of the way. Then it's what are you doing internally? Treating our, our staff right, having letting people have a voice, right? Letting you know uh, women equality, diversity. And actually putting energy into to being a part of that movement actively. And then what are you doing outside? What are we doing in the community to actually make things better? It's an amazing movement. The problem is there's only 37, 3,800 right now, or let's just say roughly 4,000. That's not enough. There's, there's millions of companies. The reason why there's only 4,000, in my opinion, is because a couple things. One it's very hard to go and get a Pepsi to move and go do all of this, this, this check, this huge list of criteria. It's a big sh move for the ship. Two, the people that care about these things in the company are completely different. You've got people who care about social impact are, you know, your, 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 your philanthropic minded people, your humanitarians. And then you got the CEO and you've got the board members, the CFO. They've got one job. They're capital heads. They have to produce a profit for their shareholders. They're legally bound to have to put that at the top of their priority. So you've got a, a disconnect here. And three, there's no evangelistic effect in the B Corp, right? There's a community, but they're kind of stuck in their own little community. What I have designed is a bridge between the C Corp and the B Corp. And it's called Better to Be. And uh, the B stands for benefit as it does in B Corp. And essentially what it is, is a, a graduating list of criteria to where we can, one, go in and show a much more palatable transition to start heading towards being a B Corp. And two, it makes 
money, as Mr. Wonderful would say. Mm-hmm. Where Show me where this makes money. I don't believe in charity. I believe in philanthropy. And what we do is essentially uh, have companies commit to one or two things. They either commit to putting a certain amount of their proceeds into social impact ventures, which are profitable companies that do something. Good. You know, the boat, they just made this boat that cleans up ocean litter and they actually turn that into recyclables and it actually is profitable. Profitable ventures that do good things for society. Or you can invest your dollars into another better to be company. So what does that mean, Dan? You could a better to be company can invest in another better to be into another, into another, and until the, the guy at the end of the chain puts into social impact. Yes. Why? One, that creates a networking recruiting effect where we're teaching, where the companies, the corporations, which they do not do today, are turning to the corporation next to them and saying, hey, you have to be a better to be corp, a company for us to invest in you, because that's a criteria. And, well, what's that? Oh, this is all you have to do. It's low barriers of entry, network effect to spread the movement, and they have to raise their hand to fit this certain type of criteria. And the end result is that we end up keeping commerce on the good side of the fence. Think of an alumni that you know you only do business with your your friends and yeah. your, your your people from the same group. So we're creating a group that is the good, the people that are the that we're, we're deeming as a community the responsible to end up holding the money. And guess what it means? More profits for the community. So we're both building businesses and putting the money in the hands of the people that hopefully will be taking care of us one day. Wow. <laughs> but the thing is, though, because the big thing about me, you want to be with like-minded individuals. So, and I get that. The same underlying DNA, the better the company, the individual, the person, the community, the globe. But a lot of stuff that I ran into is where if you donate money, like we did this stuff, the AEG, or We Are the World for Haiti, and over 100,000 downloads mm-hmm. were made at so much, and it was going there. But my big question was, I saw... You know, 2020, that whole big thing with Haiti, we did 10, 12 years ago. But then two years later, they were still there living in these refugee camps, no water, no clean water, toilets, no plumbing, no food, no clothing, no medicine. But all this money went and all this Red Cross stuff. But when you donate, it gets shuffled into board member fees, events, fundraising. The money, like, very, it was like 12% or something really small, actually makes it to the cause. Right. I mean, like Goodwill, um, Red Cross, these are multi-billion dollar companies. Their board members are just cashing in on billions of dollars of bonus checks worth their job. is. The money is not going to the cause and the people. And this is where there's a lot of startups that I've seen that are trying to trace. If I donate $1,000, I can see where it's trailed. Clear the bank, cleared your bank, went to this bank, was in the hands of the government, a GNO. By the time it filters and fees and fees down, I want to know my money's going to where people right. are getting it. And that's where I think if you're a corporation doing cause marketing, saying we're donating millions of dollars to all these causes, are you really donating the money? Are you really being a good company? Because that, to me, tarnishes your name. Because look at all these scandals where they hide behind the corporation. It's a corporate shield. You can't pierce a corporate shield while they do C-Corps and look at the Bernie Madoffs of the world and all these, all the, when the whole Ernst & Young and all those scandals happened, they're hiding behind their C-Corp. Well, we donated so much money, we're good guys. Right. But you're donating and laundering and stealing and taking millions in. And it's like COVID. Companies, lease CEOs are taking four, like one company took like 14 million in a bonus as a chairman, but then they laid off almost all their right. staff because of COVID. Well, we couldn't afford to keep them. Is that really being a good person as a corporate show, as right. a be good, as a be a B, what do you call it? A better, B shield? Better to be. Uh, like, well, B Corp. A B, B, as a B Corp, yeah. how can I say, I'm taking, how am I taking care of all these people? 
where is the money really going? So no, this is more of a yeah. filter to make sure if I'm saying that, that money's really going to the right people. That gives me the ethics and credibility in the public face to bring in investors because I'm a more of an ethical company. I mean, no, it's, it's, it's oversight. Yeah. It, it's accountability and it's also transparency, which I think- No companies know, have anymore. Right. And, you know, when, as somebody who has worked in the government sector, you know, I keep on hearing these people go, well, let the sunshine in. Let's see where our money's going. You do the same thing to a, to a corporation, they right. turn around, and give you the finger and go tell you to go, go somewhere else where you shouldn't be going. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and, you know, you, you guys both got it right. It's the oversight and the transparency that's lacking. So that's really one of the big things with the B Corp is that there's an accountability and then there's also transparency. For instance, B Corps don't give you any kind of tax breaks. In fact, you have to pay your taxes in order to be able to get be a B Corp. So now granted, you can still donate to charity and you can still take tax write-offs for charity, but you know, the excessive shell game that people do and companies do. And look, the ultimate goal and hope here is that Companies and there's successful companies out here that there that you know Pat- Patagonia is probably one of the leader uh, B Corps. You know I found Ben and Jerry's was a B Corp. I didn't know really? that. Kickstarter is a B Corp. There is ethics to eat an ice cream cone. Yeah, darn yeah. right. And Give that's me my chunky monkey, and we're good. <laughs> <laughs> chunky monkey. But, but, the world. but I feel like this B Corp also prevents segueing into our because of a few minutes left into brand corruption. We've seen so much brand corruption more this past year with COVID than ever. So this is this more of a, it's a moral compass, I guess. I mean, for brand corruption. I mean, look at the brand corruption of how many fake knockoff LVs, Chanel's, Louis, Gucci's. It's the yeah. billions of dollars and the feds. I mean, there is so it's much. Play it's playing whack-a-mole. It's playing whack-a-mole with a lot of companies and a lot of their their goods. I mean, people like like Dan can go out to a market somewhere where he will, you know, bust the, you know, the Louis Vuittons and stuff Louis like Vuitton. that. Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton. Vuitton. Sorry. I'm Louis Vuitton. Coming at. <laughs> and uh, you know, somebody who bought, wants to buy an Omega watch or a Rolex watch that's ob- obviously a knockoff. You stop that one, but I damn well sure something else is going to be popping up somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It, whack-a-mole is actually a, a phrase we use a lot. The term we use a lot because that is what it is. And that's, that's, you know, how our company, that's what we do. We're constantly monitoring and, and hitting the moles. What you're talking about is counterfeit. What, what Vantage does is more gray market, which is, which is more of an issue. It, it's not more of an issue. It, it, counterfeit's still very much an issue, but um, it's just more prevalent right now where people don't know what to do because there's not, you know, black market is, is counterfeit, right? That's that's illegal. Those are IP infringements. Gray market's not necessarily illegal. And what what gray market is is, for instance, if you get a hold of a product that, um, let's just say this is a this is an outside scenario, but it still is something that happens and is a problem. You can go into Ross and buy expiring candy and sell it for the next five years expired. There's not a law that says you can't do that under the FDA. And that, that's not the best example. The best example is is map pricing, right? That this is more of what we deal with, where map pricing stands for minimum advertised pricing. So you actually just say map. It's redundant to say pricing, but map infringements really aren't infringements. So if I go buy a, a product at wholesale or wherever, and I sell it on Amazon and it's new and it's packaged and, and you know, it, I, I'm not doing anything wrong. So when you go on Amazon and you see 20 sellers selling the same thing and you think, why does this make any sense? It doesn't. The brand doesn't like it. There's only supposed to be one or two. And these other people could be, you know, selling out of their garage, wherever. Yeah. And, you know, say Reebok goes to put, put out a shoe. 
that, you know, after a long time of R&D and advertising and all the stuff, they, they put out a shoe that's 160 bucks. Now, somebody goes in the middle of the night or on a Sunday or in broad daylight during the week, put drops that price to 120 bucks because they bought the shoes at 90. And then the aggregators pick up that price and repopulate it around the world. Now, all of a sudden, Reebok, after all this money that went into their shoe, just lost 25% of their pricing structure. So it's very damaging to companies. And we found a way to, to actually affect it to where we get gain control of the sellers and we make them authorized. And then we have, or we get rid of them. And there's a process in which we do that. I won't go into. Yeah, but, but and, social um, kind of blows holes in that theory because I've seen so much knockoff ads and bullshit we do, on we do social. social. We do social I mean, that's just like, it's, it's a crawlers. Yep. We have millions of people around the world popping up every second. We have millions of crawlers. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crawling based technology. And then we have a lot of other really kind of cutting edge stuff that allows us to actually take care of the problem. So I would eventually say we're the leader in the space, but I, I try to be humble about that because entrepreneurs <laughs> like to say that, but you know, we, uh, I think, you know, we, we really get the, the problem under control. We're growing like crazy. We have some of the biggest brands in the world. No, it, it, look, that's, that's more of an, it's a commerce play. It's not necessarily a philanthropic play, but that's the point of better to be is that you could take any company, right? I'm doing this with my own companies where we go and we're, we're giving our services to, to social impact companies that do good in the world, or at least giving a very deep discount. Same with like super dry restoration. Who's that's um, Edward Lopez, my partner there. He's a CEO of super dry. He, he it's disaster recovery, disaster relief. We're cleaning up water from hurricanes and stuff. Well, that's just a con contractor job at the base. But then what we do is we were, we're hiring veterans to, to deploy veterans to emergency sites to give veterans more transition activities because they actually get alienated when they come home, as you've probably heard. We're moving into a program where we use, we go to underserved communities and we have an apprenticeship program to actually start training people into the workforce. And then ultimately, we have a program that we're releasing soon that uses FEMA money. And, and we take government jobs where we take in that FEMA money and we're going to carve out a certain amount of that FEMA money to put it back into neighborhoods that never get touched because they're just too far away from the FEMA money. Yeah. And there's and the FEMA is supposed to be for everybody, but how does FEMA deal with that? They don't. You need the people on the ground to help. And that's what we're doing. So you could turn any of these companies into a better to be company with just a little bit of elbow grease, a little bit of, you know, just being awake, giving, giving it some attention. And, and, you know, ultimately, hopefully the goal is now hopefully the goal will be you know, the result will be is that it's different than a brand that says we're donating to something these are this is a company's really taking action you're you're putting back into into you know returns or ventures that have returns and then you know hopefully the end goal is that people which i think everybody is very sensitive to today start using only companies that do this so your business increase based on the fact that you're one of these companies ends up outweighing any kind of losses you take and it's a profitable venture all the way around and things start getting done social impact for profits exactly that's it i like that yeah i think that's a wrap it was i so think good that'll be a wrap you. too yeah <laughs> hey, you're so good i'm out of breath you know when, when you're out of breath it's like I, I know i know no. I, uh, oh this is another thing we this is another podcast we could go on for yeah. probably another one or two because especially with this better to be is, I mean, once I think Dan gets it up and rolling and rock and rolling with that, I think we should definitely keep an eye on that and, and, and highlight the companies that are well, making well, it, a it's, difference. It's also coming out of COVID. There's a lot that's going to happen this next year. We haven't even come close to coming out of this. So it's really going to be some changes. But it was so good having you on. Yeah, this was awesome. I, I appreciate really, it. Thank you. We get so much more to talk about. I know. I know. I was. I, I was like trying to truncate everything. In a, as you can imagine, it's not easy. Yes, so. and I know you, but like <laughs> I was, feel myself talking but, faster. But and I faster. feel like we had to at least <laughs> donate part of our podcast right now. 
to submarines and nuclear submarines and who's blowing what <laughs> up on boats. But we I definitely, I, I think we, we definitely want to have you back again. Yeah. It was so awesome having you on. Thanks. I want to too. Yes. And I'll wear my uh, USS Tucson hat next time. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Can I still wear my USC hat? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. I, I can just sit there and say there's a school in Tucson that has the same colors. Okay, there you go. And it's a, it's a, and it's called South Point Catholic. So, right. oh please, anything better than you? They are. copy everything from USC. That's everything. Brand infringement. Oh my god, uh-huh. it was so good to have you on, Joey. Always good. This was a good one. Always good. Yeah, this is a fun one. You. Yeah. Okay. So until next week, Sarah Miller with Meet and Mavens podcast. We we'll see everybody in a week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.